Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Place your left hand on the Bay of Bible and raise your right hand and repeat after me. I do solemnly swear. We, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. Protests continued this weekend in Ferguson and around the country. We're resisting. You're no, you're it makes no sense. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Judge, you are the last line of reason in this case. Every one of us took an oath of office and we're sworn to uphold the Constitution. From Tenderfoot TV in Atlanta, this is Sworn. I'm your host, Philip Holloway. I haven't went out investigating and asked questions like y'all do. Some people will talk to me, some people won't. Some people are scared. When it first happened, everybody's afraid they'd get killed. Last episode, we talked to the local news outlets that covered the Weidman case. We also talked to a local family friend. It's been hard for us to get a lot of the details straight. We needed to talk with the current Turner County Sheriff, Andy Hester. I tried sending him a message, and Mason tried calling twice, but we got no answer. I reached out to him by phone and by text message, but I had no luck. Finally, I decided to send one of the sworn producers in person to see if we could ask him some questions about the Weidman case. December, November, October, September. On our way down to Rebecca, we stopped at the Turner County EMS and Fire Station and met a group of nice people who were willing to sift through the fire report documents to find the one on the Weidman case. I have July, so it's filed in with 2001. Because it's fiscal year runs July 1 through June 30th. They brought out a box of paper files that they had in storage. 2002, July, August, September, October, November, December. Their fiscal year runs July 1st through June 30th. So even though the Wyman fire took place in 2002, 
It would be filed in with the 2001 reports. So March is in the 2001. He went to go see the We used to have to do um, monthly reports and turn it into forestry. No. So that means it's either burned or it's... That's why it's not solved, because the reports are gone. Maybe she's right. They looked for us, but they couldn't find any of the 2001 files. Apparently, the protocol is to keep files dating back 10 years. And after that, they're burned. Sure, sure. There should be a fire report for that. I mean, we don't, heck, I didn't know we threw anything away. We were connected with Brad Calhoun, the husband of one of the EMTs we'd spoken to earlier. I know they said the sheriff's office definitely has a copy of it, but yeah, I don't know if they'll give it to me. Uh, I can call them. I can, that shouldn't be a problem. Brad is the county and district commissioner, so he got us in touch with the sheriff, Andy Hester. How you doing? Good, how you doing? Nice to Andy Hester. Come on back. Well, I'm Andy Hester, and I'm the sheriff of Turner County. Spent about 25 of my years here in this county, whether it started out with Ashton Police Department and then came to the sheriff's office. We got lucky. Sheriff Hester was in his office, and he was willing to talk to us. Status of the case is it's open. It's raw to all of us that work here because it is to me. One, being I grew up here and uh, knew the family. Two, being I'm the sheriff of this county and people expect me to keep things fresh and, and worked on. And that's what my goal is, to make sure that it's not let you know, laying down stagnant. Since I've been sheriff, I know I've called the GBI office and met with their sack at the time that came down when I first become sheriff. I called them and asked them to come, and that was the specific reason to say, pick this case back up and please look at it harder and look at it. If anything was not turned over, to turn it over. There's a lot of information. I can't tell you that there's not something there that could solve the case. I can't tell you that there is, but I can say that there's a lot of information that's been gathered. It's very important that people... If they know anything, it don't matter if they think it's important or not. It might be a little piece of thread that connects two things together that we need connected that will solve the case. And uh, do I want to tell people that, yes, it will be solved? I want to tell them that. And I want them to be encouraged to anything they hear to please call and tell us that's what we're here for. They ain't going to be bothering us. They ain't going to cause us to have any undue work that we don't need to do. We need to do that work. You know, if they don't trust this sheriff's office, call the GBI office. Those guys, they didn't grow up here. They don't have any friends in, involved in either side. And if there's any question, I hope there's not. I hope the public that has all the confidence and trust in the world in the sheriff and the sheriff's office here. But if they don't, there's an avenue that they can take that will keep us clear of the information. They can call the GBI, and the GBI will work that case with that information without us even knowing. That's fine. I want the case solved. I don't care how it's solved. I don't care who it is that did it. We want them in jail. They murdered three people, and uh, they need to be brought to justice. That's what our goal is, and I wish we could release a lot of information out there to people like you that are you know, want to, all you want to do is solve the case. I wish we could, and, and I don't want it to seem like that we stonewalling or putting up barricades for you or the public, but there's just things that are detrimental to cases that you don't release. 
Early on in our interview with the sheriff, we were met with a common roadblock in cases like this. I really can't tell you that information because it would be information that don't need to be released. You see, with multiple agencies involved and the fact that they all consider this technically an ongoing investigation, whatever that means, even though it's nearly been 15 years, they still don't want to open up about the facts of the case. That would be something you'd have to talk to the GBI about. They still don't want to talk about what they're doing to keep this case moving. I couldn't release any of that information to you. I wouldn't be able to release that information. The GBI would have to release that to you. That's information that the GBI would have to release if it's released. I can't tell you that either. Are they doing what Sheriff Kendrick pleaded with the GBI to do back in 2005? Are they actually doing something? Or is it just simply sitting on a shelf somewhere collecting dust? Any murder is important to me. And I, I've had people say, well, you know, we have other cases that y'all don't put as much interest in. We did. And some of those are not murders. They've been a suicide or they've been something else. And, of course, the family's always convinced that their family members was a victim of somebody else's hand. That's not always the case. And sometimes you show that it was what it is and they're not satisfied with it. And I understand that. I I would probably be the same way if it was somebody I loved, but we have no interest other than solve crimes. We don't make my check go up to solve a murder, and it don't make it go down to not solve the murder. My interest in my heart is to put bad guys in jail for committing crimes. Going home and laying my head down at night knowing I'm doing the right thing for my family's name and for the public is, is my goal. I don't gain anything from covering something up or uncovering something. It don't gain me anything. What will gain me is if I do the right thing and put people in jail that are criminals. That's the goal. I just want the public to know, and we depend on them as much as we depend on each other to get this job done. Once that it was determined that there was someone in the house, at some point that morning we contacted GBI and let them come to the scene and started processing the scene after the fire was extinguished and determined that there were people in the home. They came and processed it before anything was moved from the residence at all. They came initially before, and once the fire was out, before anything was taken from the scene, the GBI was called and they processed the scene. Crime scene taped off, and there was uh, several days passed before that scene was released. I do know that the... Uh, the remains of the home was sifted through. And I mean, sifted, I'm talking about sifted with a piece of equipment that sifts ashes and things of that nature. So I know that it was processed thoroughly. We asked the sheriff about the fire reports. He didn't have them. And it sounded like he'd never even seen them. Now, Brad told me that they, I don't, I don't know if they could find it or whatever. Um, there should be a copy of the fire department um, report in the in the case file, and I mean that would have been all in that. There's a box of stuff that the GBI has, and it's all in that case file. I know there's a lot of information out there because people, however they found out information, that you know there's been a lot of and some speculation, and some could be truth to some of it. I couldn't confirm or deny. I know that the contact was made with their families that morning. I don't know where they were at in reference to where they were when they were contacted. I do know that some of the family members came out to the scene that morning. So as far as who contacted them, where they were at when they were contacted, I don't, I didn't contact them myself. So whoever done that, 
I know it's probably in the case file, but I don't know who did it or where they were at when they were contacted. Some of them live in Rebecca and some of them live in Tifton. And so they were probably notified pretty quickly after it was determined, you know, that somebody was in the house. I'm sure they were notified pretty quickly after that. I know the ones that live in Rebecca, Charles Henry and Diane Weidman, Chip Weidman, uh, Larry and the, his wife has been very adamant and persistent, which they should be about, you know, the case being worked on and that. And, and I agree totally with them. But uh, I know that everybody in the county has their opinion on what they think, which at this time, everybody that could be interviewed has been interviewed, whether they were a suspect or a person of interest. I know the GBI's interviewed and exhausted all those avenues. And certainly if there's been new ones over the time that have come up, the GBI has responded quickly and promptly to go and follow up any leads. And so... You know, our hope is through whatever means, doing the news interviews and things like this, that somebody somewhere will, you know, remember something or maybe have told somebody at the time and that person didn't act or whatever or didn't relay that information on that we can rehash it again or visit it again. But I can't tell you we have a suspect and I can't tell you we don't either. I do know that every avenue has been checked on that could be checked on, whether it led to new information or whether it ruled somebody out or ruled somebody in. I can't tell you that either. But we have, and recent as Sunday, got information that's been given in the case that could be beneficial. It could, we don't know yet, but it's everything that we can gather, some one little something can make the difference, and that's what we're hoping and I hope that some little something comes along that's the piece to the puzzle that we need. And I feel like somebody out there knows something that maybe will will help. Whether they think they give it before and then it just didn't work out or not, or I hope they'll refresh it and say, look, Sheriff, we, we told this before, but we want to tell it again. And I make sure that it's, you know, goes to who it needs to be and that it's followed up on. I mean, that's my, I kind of feel like a, the coaching the deal where I want to make sure everything's done that can be done, I think that we could have been a lot closer than we are now. Do I think there's some out there somewhere? I do. I think there's something that's just not been reported or something that could be picked up on outside that physical location there because everything that could be got from that physical location has been got. A fire destroys a lot of things, but I do know that anything that could have been collected was collected. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. just out of history of doing this job 27 years that when somebody acts alone, it's a lot harder to catch them than it is if you got somebody that's helped them. I know that. I don't have a clue. We don't, I, mean, I couldn't tell you if there was one or two or five in this instance, but I know that people have a hard time keeping their mouth shut. <laughs> so I hope that somebody somewhere knows something and they'll tell. I think it caused some, maybe some anger in people that are just convinced that they know who could have done it and that they, they hadn't been arrested, but it's just not that easy And to just say, well, we think they did it. We got to have the uh, stuff to put them in jail. And so the unfortunate thing is, is that we as law enforcement, of course, I, I got a bunch of people here that's that didn't grow up here. I know everybody, all of them, every part of the family on both sides. And uh, so, you know, there's always speculations about, well, the sheriff knows this or knows that or whatever, but I got investigators and GBI work in this case that have no clue who any of these people are. They don't have ties to them. They ain't connected to them in some form or fashion because of living here. And so that alone, I hope, takes the conflict out of people's minds that, well, the sheriff can control and do what he wants to do with cases, and that's not the case. My interest is to solve cases. I don't care who they are. But if there's anybody that has that kind of a conflict, I, I want them to be assured that the people that work this case, that work at the sheriff's office and the GBI, have no connection with these families at all. Either way, they don't have a dog in the fight either way. So there's no influence. I try to stay as clear from cases like that. 
My deputies, when they go out and answer calls, if they know families like that, I'll try to steer another deputy to that location just because of the mere conflict it causes in people's minds. So I think that's the only thing that's affected the community is they just think that they know who did it and they think they should be in jail. And I agree with them. I want somebody in jail too that did it. As my personal experience is you always start closest you can to the incident, the family and things of that nature. So now what kind of cooperation you get out of them, I don't have a clue. Some of it could be the fact that they are, you know, wanting to be patient and let the GBI, they don't want to do anything to interfere with the case either. And some of it could be other reasons. You know, I always start inside the house and work out with missing kids because I have found them laying in the closet asleep and they think they've been kidnapped and they're in there sleeping in a pile of clothes. So I always start in the center of the house and work out. I think that's a good rule of thumb for anything. You start in the center of the conflict and work out, you find out a lot of things moving outward. So there's a lot of people questioned and certainly all those that were closest to the family, was, I know they were questioned. I think they were all interviewed, you know, starting in the middle of the house. You start out and question everybody. We were all interviewed about everybody, you know, the families and stuff like that. We were all interviewed about that stuff. You know, everybody's always skeptical about releasing something that ruins a case because then it makes us look bad. And, it, well, the sheriff shouldn't have done that or he... He let out something that caused him to lose the case. That's what we're scared of. We're, we're scared of letting out one something and then getting to court and they throwing it out because we released it and it's tainted a jury or something like that. That's what we're scared of. We're not scared of, we not having anything to hide. It's all about integrity of the case and knowing that a lawyer is going to look for that little chink and he's going to say, well, didn't you tell so-and-so this? And, and then it's just, it ruins that piece of evidence. So we're really skeptical about releasing in-depth information. It's not that we're trying to hide anything from the Pope. We just don't want to lose the case. It's a two-edged sword. We want to get it out where we can get help. But then if you give it out, it costs you an end. So then we're like in a two-pronged thing. They were like, how much, what do you tell? What do you say? I mean, and it seems like, well, dang, it would help. But then it ruins it at the end. I'm not the best at, at what I do. I strive to be, and I probably don't know everything I should and shouldn't release, but I try to be as open to the public as I can. They expect me to be knowledgeable enough to know if I'm going to cost the case in the end to lose it, and that loses their respect in me for that. So then I have to weigh out all those options. So it's rough sometimes. Since they're still considering this an open investigation, how will we ever know if they're doing the things that John Dawes says that they should be doing? How are we supposed to know if they're actually looking at things, if they're actually talking to people? Are they re-interviewing witnesses? Are they actually doing something? This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast, I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. 
if you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I think the case is solvable, yes. How to solve it? I don't know. I can't tell you. I think we missed our chance. I think a lot of the evidence has been disappeared. Remember the guy whose name has been censored throughout the podcast? Here he is. We got hold of him, but again, he asked us not to use his name. He told us a story about one of the persons of interest in this case. Jason uh, Walker. Him and Melissa were dating at the time, and they tried to pin it on him, but I don't think he done it. Do you know that was his baby, don't you? To recap, Jason Walker is the supposed father of Melissa's child and immediately a target of suspicion. But according to the story that this family member told us, somebody he knew corroborated Jason's alibi that night. She was an EMC and she went and knew Jason Walker too and knew their history with Dayton and all that. And she said she was at his house that morning. She fell from his truck and the hood was cold. So he didn't drive that truck that night. He trusted that person enough to believe it couldn't be Jason. 
After a while, he began to express his theories on who may be responsible and told us some findings of his own. We was all set up to have a lie detector test and the Wyvern's decided they wasn't gonna have it and we didn't have it. And that's all I can tell you. I mean, you know, as far as legality things. Why, I can't even, they wouldn't nobody give me an answer to that either. All my family was set up to do it. Had a day set and then all of a sudden, kaboom, we wasn't. Now, how does that happen? I mean, there's a lot of questions like that that I could ask, but it don't, I can't give you no evidence. This thing consumed my life for three years after it happened, and I decided I had to go on my way, you know, to be affecting my whole family. So I haven't went out investigating and asked questions like y'all do. Some people will talk to me, some people won't. Some people are scared. When it first happened, everybody's afraid they'd get killed. I wasn't going to be the executor of Deborah's estate. It's all going to the Wyvins anyway. I mean, it's their money, but they had problems. But they kept the death certificate away from us for three months. And the Wyvins had it done all the stuff, and we didn't know nothing. The Perry's, which was the coroner, Perry Funeral Home, and I didn't know nothing about it till July the 3rd. And when we met at the lawyer's office, Cheryl Bryant's office, with Charles Henry Wyman, and I found out they had the, had the death certificate for three months. And that's when I decided to be the executor of Deborah's state so I could find out something. These connections, one of them pairs' wife is kin to the Wyman's, was in the courthouse. All of the life insurances were done before anything happened, before the Wyman's. He wasn't executor, I wasn't executor, but it all of a sudden got done. And we got one life insurance to pay Deborah's bills, or Tom Joe and Deborah's bills. They was in debt heavily. Why was it held back? They got the life insurance, they sold the cars, they got car insurance, they got everything before the legal process started. Does that make sense? If you don't have a will, it goes back to the maternal grandmother. You check it out and see if I'm right. Tom and Joe, Deborah had one, I love you, Will. If I leave you, you leave me, and if I die first, it's as if you know what I'm talking about. Melissa didn't. If that baby had been born, that would have brought the Walkers into the state. The Wyvern's wouldn't have it'd been divided up. So Miss Wyvern was in her deathbed anyway, and the Wyvern's was in financial trouble. Well, I point the finger as the man from America's Most Wanted told me, follow the money, and you get the criminals. Four or five million dollars. 2,000 acres land, bunch of stock, house on Fernandina Beach on the ocean. From the outside, it may not appear that the Wyman inheritance was exceptionally large, but according to him, when it was broken down, it amounted to four or five million dollars. And I think there's a lot with Kendrick and the Wyman's together. They've been seen going to parties in Florida with limousines and things like ball games and things like that. He stopped everything. I mean, a sheriff is a powerful man. He stopped a lot of things. He stopped the GBI if he wants to. And that's the reason I think it's boiling down to the Wyman's living, Rebecca. They was one of the ones, first ones out there. And then Randy Kennedy was the sheriff. And he stopped a lot of things, just like investigation or things like that. He's the one who gives the okay to bulldoze the house down. A friend of whoever done it is going to have to talk or listen and hear something. Well, you know, GBI ain't going to tell you much or nothing. So I can't verify if things were said or told or nothing. I can't. I don't know. When you're sitting in my position, ain't nobody going to talk to you in the enforcement, Harley. That's the reason I got investigated. He told me 
that he couldn't tell me anything. He'd have to tell the enforcement. But the enforcement people didn't let him do nothing. And he's retired in Jacksonville, Florida. It cost me $500 for him to come up here and ride and, and talk to Randy Kendrick and go back. And then he said, you know, if I can't get a piece of information to start on, and if he puts out the word, don't talk to nobody, there ain't nothing I can do. I'll be wasting your money. So that mysterious phone call we played last episode, we shared it with this individual. Turns out, 10 years earlier, he'd heard a similar story from the same person. There's a good possibility of what he's saying. There's a, a good bit of truth to it. It's very possible to happen that way. Just without all the details. He didn't, he didn't go into this detail like you, like you got. No, he did not. Now, I don't know when he learned all this either. All I know is all of a sudden, shortly thereafter that, he got killed in a car wreck. And again, one of them coincidences or whatever, there's a lot of things happening over the years. A lot of people have died at new times. Not many years after these murders took place, a key player in this story died in a car wreck. But according to the story, other even more important players are still alive. I think they wrote a lot of things off then. I don't know what they had their eyes on or they had their eyes focused on. If you give the GBI, are they going to do anything with it? I don't know. Uh, but if you pursue it yourself, I don't know which way is going to be the best, to be honest with you. Remember when we played that anonymous call in episode two? We've decided we want to play you some more, but we're still keeping the names out of it. We will never, probably never talk, speak of it. They were good friends with this uh, Chip Weidman. I believe hired the people that murdered those people. They murdered them and burned the house. It's a hell of a story. Now, why am I interested in it? Who was a drug addict and an alcoholic and who finally killed himself in a high-speed car accident, he and were the alibi that night for the prime suspect in the murder case. Do you understand what I'm telling you? They were his only alibi. Our producer, Payne, received that phone call a year ago. When we started the sworn investigation, Mason reached out to the same individual to get some input on the story. A half hour later, he called Mason back. Hello. Is this Mason Lindsay? Yes, this is. Don't ever call me about this. I, I don't like your brother. I don't like you. And I don't know a goddamn thing about the murder case you asked me about. But I do know about y'all. What a bunch of swine you are. So don't ever call me, okay? We decided that this information was too sensitive to sit on by ourselves. So executive producer Payne Lindsay and I made an editorial decision and decided that Payne should contact Jason Shadell of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And he passed this information along. We'll continue to follow this case in the future and plan to come out with more episodes in a few months. So please, if you have any information at all about this case, contact the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. You can also contact us directly at sworntips at gmail.com. Sworn is produced by Tenderfoot TV in Atlanta. 
Story and production by Payne Lindsay, Mason Lindsay, and Meredith Stedman, and myself, Philip Holloway. Sound design by Payne Lindsay. Executive producers Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Mixed and mastered by Resonate Recordings. Also, if you haven't yet, please check out our sister podcast, Up and Vanished, that follows the investigation into the disappearance of Georgia high school teacher and beauty queen, Tara Grinstead. Up and Vanished is available now on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. This is Philip Holloway, and I'll see you next time on Sworn. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.